Well, if uh, you have your Bibles this morning, uh, we're going to be over in Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Or uh, if you have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, uh, you can actually follow along with us on there as well. Uh, you uh, open the app, click on the bottom where it says more and then events. Uh, if it doesn't pop up Cornerstone Community Church, you can search for that Cornerstone Community Church in Owada and follow along with that as well. And uh, we've been going through several weeks now, over the last previous eight weeks, uh, through the book of Exodus. And this morning is actually going to be our last week in Exodus. Next week, we're going to start uh, in Leviticus. And uh, we find ourselves uh, in an interesting place in Exodus. So last week, we finished up talking about the Ten Commandments, and we talked about uh, you know, commandments five through ten, and they have this you know principle to it of um, loving your neighbor as yourself. They relate to this idea of how we treat the people around us. We honor our mother and father. We uh, do not murder. We do not commit adultery. We don't steal. We don't covet. These things that all relate to how we treat the people around us. And we talked about when you look at the Ten Commandments as a total. You know, it all revolves around the two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's these moral, you know, these great moral laws for us to follow. But the thing is, in our brokenness, in our sin, we cannot live up to the bar that's been set. We cannot live up to this standard because as much as we try, we fall short. But luckily, through God's grace, he sent his son to be that sacrifice for us, that we can be forgiven, that we can find freedom in him. And so that's where we were last week, but then we get to Exodus 33, and we find a God who is angry. And not just angry. To say angry would be, uh, you know, just kind of putting it lightly. We find a God who is livid with his people. And so what has happened What's happened from the time, you know, God gives these commandments to now he's livid with his people? Well, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 1 and 24, 12, we see that Moses has gone to Mount Sinai to meet with God. He's told to go up to stay on the mountain with God. And in Exodus 24, 18, it says that he stayed up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he's up there on this mountain with God, he receives these different instructions on the tabernacle. You know, here's what is supposed to be offered at the tabernacle. Here's how the tabernacle is to be constructed. Here's what is supposed to go into it. Here's what's supposed to go into the courtyard of the tabernacle. Here's all of these details on the tabernacle. It goes into how it's not just only to be constructed. What are the priests supposed to wear? The priestly garments. All of these things described to Moses. And these are important things because this is all part of this reminder. The tabernacle is this reminder that God is dwelling in the presence of his people. God is with there with his people. And while he's here, we hear about a sad thing that has taken place. While he's gone receiving these instructions, while he's gone on the mountain with God, the people come to Aaron and they say, Hey, Aaron, we want you to make us some gods. 
Make us some gods because we don't know what happened to this Moses fellow and we don't know when he's going to come back. And so would you please create some gods for us that, you know, will go before us. And Aaron, you know, he's been with Moses through all of these like amazing things. And so Aaron says, no, absolutely not. I will not do this. I will not make for you false gods. He just gave us these commandments saying no other god, no idols. No, we're not, we're not going to do this. Well, no, that's wrong. He, he asked for all the gold earrings from the women. And he melts it down into an idol that comes out in the shape of a calf. Then we see that they offer sacrifices, burnt offerings at an altar before this golden calf. Oh, and of course, God sees what's going on. And God is not happy, understandably so. Matter of fact, listen to what God says to Moses in Exodus 32, 7 through 10. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. We'll talk more about that here in just a bit. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. When God says, I'm going to destroy them, you know he's not happy. You know he's not happy with what's going on. And we see Moses seek out God's favor on the people's behalf. And later in chapter 32, we see that God will tell Moses he will have his angel go ahead of them, but there's going to be punishment, and he brings a plague down on his people. It doesn't tell us what the plague was, but they get punished for this. And that leads us to where we find ourselves this morning. And as we wrap up our study on Exodus, I would encourage you to read the rest of Exodus but we find a text that is so beyond relevant for us today. And we find a story that is similar that plays out through the New Testament to where we find ourselves today. And so what is that story? Well, we're going to start in chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. And this is what it says. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. And so here we start in chapter 33 by saying that God's telling Moses to leave this place and go with the people to the land that was promised to them. This is the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a response to Moses asking God for this in chapter 32 in Exodus 32:13, where it says, Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. 
I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land. I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And so God says, go. Go to this place that I've promised you. I will send an angel in front of you. I will give you this, you know, spiritual uh, strength that you need. I will give you this help that you need to drive out these enemies. I will do what I have promised. But then he says, I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to go with you because you're a stiff-necked people. Now, there's several words that can describe what God is saying here when he says stiff-necked people. What he's really saying is you're prideful, you're stuck up, you're stubborn, you're obstinate, you're difficult to lead. And this attitude, it describes the people of Israel quite often in Scripture. This is not the only time he will call them stiff-necked. In Deuteronomy 9.13, And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. In Nehemiah 9.16 and 17, it says, But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. Even in Acts chapter 7, we see this phrase used. You, in Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You are a stiff-necked people, and God tells them, I'm not going to go with you because you're a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. There's nothing stopping me from just destroying you on this journey. Powerful words from God. That shows how angry he is at what's going on, and it continues. The people hear these distressing words. I would be distressed too. I might destroy you. And they're distressed, and they don't put on any of their ornaments. These ornaments would be the things they got from the Egyptians when they left, when the Egyptians were like, just get out of here, take our stuff, and go. And so they don't put on any of the ornaments because the Lord had told Moses, tell the Israelites, you're stiff-necked people, and if I go with you for even a moment, I might destroy you. I go with you even for a moment I might destroy you this shows what has been boiling with God over and over and over again God has done miraculous things in the sight of his people he's brought them out of Egypt he's provided everything they need he's given them these commandments to live a holy life for him and yet over and over and over again the people constantly rebel against God they constantly go against what God has asked them to do they constantly go against what God has commanded them to do and over and over and over again they show how stiff-necked they are and God's I'm tired of this I am very tempted to just wipe you off the face of the earth because of what you've done, because of what you continue to do. And so our text, it continues on into verse 7. It says, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. 
Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. And so Moses would establish this tent of meeting. Now, to avoid any confusion, this tent of meeting is not the tabernacle. The tabernacle wasn't constructed until later. But this was also a tent that was known as a tent of meeting, and the tent was placed outside of the camp a distance away, and the purpose of the tent would be for people to go and uh, seek out the Lord for spiritual guidance. And while we see Moses would walk to to the tent of meeting, the people would go out and they would just watch. They would stand at the entrance and they would watch as Moses would go to the tent. And when he would enter into the tent, the pillar of cloud that we see earlier in the Exodus story would come and and it would stay at the entrance while Moses would speak with the Lord. And while this was there, the people would worship. They would worship from the, the door of their tent. And something I find really interesting here is that when you look in Exodus chapter 25, it says that the whole reason for the tabernacle, for the sanctuary, is that God would dwell with his people, that God would dwell in the midst of his people. In Exodus 25, 8, it says, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. But we find ourselves here in 33, it sounds like this tent of meeting is outside of the camp, and people don't go past, you know, their door frames of their tents. They just watch you notice that God is separate from his people. God has been separated from his people because of the actions of the people, because of the stiff-necked attitude of the people. And yet, while the people seem to be separated from God, we see this friendship that God has with Moses. And it says that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. This isn't a literal face-to-face, as we'll see later in our text. This is a figurative expression. This shows this openness and friendship. Moses and God, they had this intimate relationship, this intimate relationship that was like a very close friendship that Moses could talk to God. God would talk to Moses. It was this close relationship. And we see this in Scripture, just how close this bond was. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 8, when Aaron and Miriam are having some issues with Moses, it says this, it says, with him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He speaks to him clearly face to face, that kind of relationship they have. In Deuteronomy 34.10 it says, since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face this close, intimate relationship. And what's interesting is even though they had this very close relationship, we know that this relationship that Moses and God had, it doesn't even compare to the relationship that his son would have with him. Jesus, with the relationship he would have with his father. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. But Moses still had that close relationship with God. And so, looking at these first few verses, I think there's something very important here that we need to realize. 
Sin separates us from God. It does. Sin separates us from God. You see, sin in its most simple definition is going against God and His Word. To sin is to go against God and His Word. And it makes sense, right, that if you're constantly going against something, then it's going to create separation. If I constantly go against my wife and, you know, argue with her about every little thing and challenge her on every little thing, eventually it's going to create separation between the two of us. And so it is with God. The more that we sin against God, the more that we push against God, the more that we go against Him and His Word, the more we are going to become separated from Him. And Scripture tells us this. Micah 3, 4, then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. Isaiah 59, 2, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Do you understand what this means? Think about this for a second. If sin separates us from God then that would mean to be separated from God who has breathed life into us. He is the creator of life. He is the creator of everything that moves, breathes, all of that. He is the creator of life. Therefore, if he is the creator of life, then we're dead. We are dead in our sins. We are dead in our trespasses. We are dead because of that thing that separates us from him. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2.1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And not only are we dead in our sins, may I remind you of Pharaoh, whose sin hardened his heart. Sin does this to us. Sin darkens, hardens our hearts. Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. I love how the writers that got questions worded this. They said, sin hardens us. Ongoing sin is a series of decisions, each one choosing against God's authority in our lives and substituting our own. Those decisions create a wall between us and our Creator because we cannot have two masters. Sin stands between us and God. Sin separates us from Him. But can we talk about a sad truth this morning? If we're to be honest with ourselves, I think we take our sin too lightly, don't we? Our sin, we've, we've gotten to this place in our lives where we take our sin too lightly. We rationalize our sin, don't we? I only did this because I was tired. Oh, I, I only do this because I need something to take the edge off. I, I only do this because of this thing that's happening. I only do this because... Or we make excuses for why we do what we do. There's no repentance from it. There's no repentance. There's no saying, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I, I want to do different. No, we, we kind of say, well, this is just who I am, and that's all there is to it. I like what A.W. Tozer once said. He said, this is the day of excusing sin instead of purging sin. An entire school of thought has developed justifying sin within the church and trying to prove that sin is perfectly normal and therefore acceptable. Acceptable. 
We take it so lightly, don't we? A matter of fact, not only have we started to take our own sins so lightly, but we've started doing the same thing for the sins around us. And we, we use this phrase, I've heard it said, and you've probably heard it said too, we should just accept them in their sin. We should accept their sin. I sin, you sin, they sin. Why can't we just let them do whatever they want to do? Why can't we just let them live the life they want to live? Why can't we just let them be who they want to be? Let's just embrace it. Again, A.W. Tozer, he says it like this. Religion today is not transforming the people. It is being transformed by the people. It is not raising the moral level of society. It is descending society's own level and congratulating itself that it has scored a victory because society is smiling, accepting its surrender. We are called to love people. I'm called to love people. You're called to love people. But guess what? Part of loving people is not wanting them to continue to walk in their ways of sin. It's not wanting them to continue doing what they're doing, knowing that they're harming themselves, that they're separating themselves from God. No, part of me loving somebody, it's like a parent who loves their child enough to say, don't touch the stove, it's hot. You know that if you do that, you're going to burn yourself. To love people means coming alongside of them and saying, hey, we're not supposed to live this way. We're supposed to live according to the word. And so I'm going to walk with you and we're going to try to do what the word says. I can love people, but I don't have to want them to walk in sin. And too often, we find ourselves bending backwards to satisfy the culture, to walk like the rest of the culture around us, and we're wondering, God, where is this revival we've been praying for? This revival we seek, it's not happening. It's because this whole time, we're walking around accepting what everything is going on around us. Guys, we need to understand what sin actually does to us. We need to understand what sin actually does to us. It separates us from God. It hardens our heart. It puts us in the grave. That's what it means to sin. It separates us from him. We cannot take sin so lightly. Are we repentant? Are we seeking every day to live according to his word? And when we fall, are we going to him quickly and ask him for forgiveness? Or are we just saying this is just what it is because... And so, we see the people of God separated from him. So what happens next? Moving over to verse 12. It says, Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Moses now is talking to God, and he says, you know what? You've told me to lead these people, but who is going with me? Who, are, who is coming with me on this journey? I think Moses, what he's saying is, is he realizes, God, if you don't come with us, we're in trouble. There, I'm concerned if you're not coming with us, then there's going to be some issues, and Moses, knowing the relationship he has with God, says, if you're pleased with me, if you have found favor with me, if you are as close to me as you have said that you are, and then show me your ways 
so that I may know you and find favor with you. Moses wants to continue to learn God's ways. He wants to continue to enjoy his grace and his favor. He wants to know the Lord better. And I think it's interesting that later on, David had this same relationship in the Psalms. Psalm 25.4, show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Psalm 27.11, teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Psalm 86.11, teach me your way, Lord that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. It's a good question, isn't it, to ask ourselves? Do we ask God the same things? Show me your way, Lord. Teach me your way. Help me to understand you better, to know you more. You know it's okay to ask these things of God. We can ask, God, help me to know you better. Help me to understand you more. Help me to know you the way you want me to. And then Moses makes a statement. He says, remember this nation is your people. Moses is interceding on behalf of the people here. God, these are your people, even though they are stiff-necked, even though they have rebelled, even though they have screwed up over and over and over again. They are still your people. You've brought them here. They are still yours. And the Lord responds, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Because of the favor that Moses has found with God, God will go with the people. Then verse 15, through 17, it says, then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. It's a good question that Moses asked here. If you're not going to go with us, then don't send us from here because we need you. We need you. Without you, what's the difference between us and anybody else? You're the thing that separates us from everything else. You are the one. You are the person. You are the God who separates us from each and every other peoples. Without you, we're nothing. And God tells him he will do what he says because he's pleased with him and he knows his name. And then Moses continues in verse 18. He says, and Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back but my face must not be seen. What a bold, bold statement from Moses. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. God, what does that mean, to show, show me your glory? Well, the glory of God, it, it comes out of who he is. It's his character. It's his attributes. It's everything that makes God who he is. It's all the things that when you think of God, it's who God is. All of these things. And he says, show me your glory. 
and God responds by saying he will, call, or he will cause all of his goodness to pass in front of him. Now, I want you to think about that for just a second. The goodness of God. I will have all of my goodness pass in front of you. When I think of the goodness of God, I think it's something unimaginable to think of just how good God is. To think about how good God is in each and every one of his ways, God is good. And to think about how good God is. I can't fathom just, I can't put a number to just how good God is. And so if God is that good, imagine all of God's goodness passing right in front of you. Man, I, I don't know, what, that would be amazing to see all the goodness of God right in front of him. And he says, I will show you all my goodness and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And I will have mercy on those whom I have mercy. God is a God of mercy, is he not? Mary talked about this in Luke chapter 1, verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And he says he will show compassion on those whom he will show compassion he is a God of compassion. Psalm 103.8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Psalm 145 verse 9, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And he tells him, here's the thing. You can see all my goodness. He'll, see, he'll end up seeing the back of God, but you cannot see my face. He would be able to see the back of God, but you cannot see my face. To see his face would mean to no longer live. And you may think, isn't there stories where people have had some kind of encounter with a God, a, a theophany or anything like that? Yes. But none of these people have seen God in his full glory. Paul makes this clear in 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16, which God will bring about in his own time, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in inapproachable light, unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. And so this account here, we see this conversation between Moses and God. Moses intercedes on behalf of his people. And I think here we find the second thing that we so desperately need to understand this morning, and it's this. We need a mediator. We need a mediator, just as the people of God needed a mediator so do we need a mediator. And I read this definition the other day of what is a mediator, what does a mediator do? What's the job of a mediator? And this definition said a mediator attempts to influence a disagreement between two parties with the goal of resolving a dispute. You see, here's the thing. This isn't an equal disagreement. There's no two disagreements here. We may disagree sometimes with how we think God should do things, but guess what? There is no disagreement because God has done nothing wrong. God has done nothing wrong. And you see, just as God's people needed Moses to stand between them and God and ask for God to be with them, the reason they needed that was because their sin had separated them from God. And guess what? Our sin separates us from God. And so we need someone to help us. And so the reason we need someone to help us, we have to remember our position. Where are we? Here, separated from him. And what causes us? Our sin. Isaiah 64, 6, we are all infected and impure with sin. 
Let's read that again. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sin sweeps us away like the wind. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Not a single one of us in this room is righteous. Not a single one of us in this room is righteous because of our sin. We, each and every one of us in this room, is filthy and impure, infected by our sin. And so, because of that, we need a mediator. We need someone who can stand between us and God on our behalf. Whoever could do such a thing? 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews 9.15, for this very reason, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is our mediator. But he's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God. How in the world is this possible? How is it possible that Jesus is our mediator? Let's go back to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. For this, very, or for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The reason Jesus is our mediator, the way that he has become our mediator is through his sacrifice, because of the blood that he poured out for us, because of his blood shed on the cross. It is the only thing that saves us. Jesus' sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, him being our mediator, that is the only thing that saves us. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved he came, he lived, he died, he rose again. And because of this, God, the Son of God stands between us and him, mediating on our behalf. He is what saves us. His blood, his sacrifice has saved us. And here's the thing. Because of this act of grace, where there was this chasm, me and you, sin, God, because of what Jesus has done, we can come back into his presence. We can be back in the presence of God. He dwells with us and within us. First John 4, 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us a spirit. Revelation 21, 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And guess what? Because now we've been reconciled to God, we can be in the presence of God, we can, we can approach the throne of God. Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 7, 18 and 19, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And here's the thing, just as 
you know, Moses interceded on behalf of his people, guess what happens? God hears Moses, and so he goes with them. And when you get to the end of Exodus, the tabernacle is there in the midst of the people. God is dwelling in the midst of his people. And just for us, the same thing is true. Where there was that chasm, where there was that separation between us and God, Jesus stepped in the middle of that. And because of his sacrifice, we have been reconciled to him. We can draw near to him. We can be with him for eternity. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they come up, here's the thing. This morning, that grace that has been poured out on the people we can receive that same grace. You can give your life to Jesus this morning. You can ask for the forgiveness of your sins. You can go before him and you can lay those things at his feet and you can go before the cross and find forgiveness through Jesus. And if you've never given your life to him, David said it this morning, if you don't know him, if you haven't given your life to him, why not? And what better time and what better opportunity than now? We don't have to stay where we're at. We don't have to continue to let ourselves be separated from him any longer. We can choose to go to Jesus. We can choose to say, Father, I've stumbled, I've fallen, I've made mistake after mistake after mistake, and I give my life to you. I know that there is no other way except for you. And so this morning, if you've never given your life to him and the connect cards around you, you can write that out. I'd love to talk with you. You can find me after service. I'd love to talk with you. And maybe you're here this morning and it's just the things of this world have started to just harden your heart. Or maybe the things of this world, the the things that are happening around you, maybe the sin in your life, it's started to affect your relationship with him and it's just become so commonplace. And we rationalize it and we say, oh, well, it's only because of this. And maybe like the nation of Israel, you find yourself rebelling against him. And this morning, you can take those things before him and you can lay those at his feet and you can, God, I'm, so, I'm tired of letting these things drive a wedge. And so in your chairs where you're sitting, you can, you can pray to him, God, help me to live a life for you. Help me to take these things that are hardening my heart, that are driving a wedge between us. Take those things and help me to not take my sin so lightly. Man, that's what sin does to us. We cannot let it become so light in our life. We cannot try to rationalize it. We can't make excuses for it anymore. We need to realize what sin does. It separates us from him. But when sin does separate us from him, when sin comes in between us, we can remember we have a mediator, Jesus Christ, who came, who lived, who died, who rose again, who shed his blood that we could be forgiven. There's no better time than this morning to give your life to him if you haven't. And so if you have a decision to make this morning, I pray that you do so as we stand and we sing.